0: I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Lisa Alaferes. Lisa Alaferes is the editor of State of Health, a health blog at KQED News, San Francisco's NPR affiliate. Over her 20 year career, she's worked in the health unit at Dateline NBC, as a Kaiser Family Foundation Media Fellow in Health, and as a senior editor in the California Endowment Health Journalism Fellowships Program. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Lisa Alaferes.
1: Thank you very much for that nice introduction, and thank you everyone for being here. Tonight's discussion explores altruism and wonders provocatively if altruism is a wonder drug. Studies show that people who score higher on measures of altruism, and that's defined as giving or providing care or even acting kindly, not only are happier people, um, are are not only happier than people who are more self-centered, but they're also healthier. Um, So joining us on our panel this evening to explore um, what altruism means for our physical and and, uh, mental health are Stephen Post. He's the author of The Hidden Gifts of Helping and the founder of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. He is professor of preventive medicine and founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics, at the Stony Brook University School of Medicine in New York. Stephen Post, welcome. Also, we have David Levinson. David is the founder and executive director of Big Sunday. Big Sunday started as a single day of community service and now offers volunteering and giving opportunities year-round for more than 50,000 people throughout California. He is also the author of Everyone Helps, everyone wins, how absolutely anyone can pitch in, help out, give back, and make the world a better place. David Levinson, thank you for being here. And Dr. James Doty, he is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. He collaborates with scientists from a number of disciplines examining the neural basis for compassion and altruism, And he is also a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford's Medical School. Thank you, Jim, for being here. So, Stephen Post, I'd like to start with you. I'm hoping you can just give us a quick overview. This is so provocative that being kind can make us healthier. Can you tell us about that?
2: Well, why don't I give you two quick research studies? (laughs) The first one... Was conducted by United Healthcare, which, as many of you are aware, is perhaps the largest managed healthcare system in the United States. In 2010, they did a randomized survey of 5,500 Americans, a scientific survey. And what they discovered is that in 2009, 41% of Americans volunteered to help others. Now, on average, people volunteered 100 hours a year, which is something like two hours a week. So we're not talking high thresholds. Then they asked some really interesting health-related questions. Does volunteering make you feel physically healthier? 68% of the respondents reported yes. Does volunteering make you feel happier? 96% responded yes, which is impressive. Uh, Does volunteering make you feel less stressed? 73% responded yes. It makes people sleep better, gives them a greater sense of well-being. And so I would contend that if you had a compound that could be this effective, and you could sell it, you'd be a billionaire overnight. But fortunately, we don't need such a compound because we have that capacity already within us if we just make a point of contributing meaningfully to the lives of others. Second study, and then I'll be letting go of this, and you can pass on to to David or or Jim. Uh, In AA, a lot of you are familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, yes? Okay, so no, no implication here. I wasn't inferring anything. Uh, <laughs> Got to watch that. Anyway, so um, there's a wonderful study that came out, and it followed people. Uh, they go to three weeks of detox, and then typically they'll be referred to AA, which is a mutual aid group, a self-help group. And if you follow them for one year from that point of referral, who's still dry? Well, if you go to an AA meeting, you know that right from the get-go, people are doing things to help others. Someone's a greeter at the door, someone's passing out literature, someone's giving their testimony or setting up chairs or making the coffee. And so uh, our group actually uh, developed a scale. And is your AA this is, uh, no. the AA group? <laughs> yes, 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 yes our research group, but, but you, you got me on that, Jim. Thank you. And by the way, laughing's good for you. Um, so, so, so the ones who were high quartile helpers of other alcoholics had a 40% recovery rate one year after going dry, which is really good. The ones who did other aspects of the 12 steps, you know, um, a sense of contrition, maybe making some amends, uh, humility and so forth, but weren't actually actively helping other alcoholics in these various ways, right? Their recovery rate was only 22%. So the bottom line, and here I will end, is that you double the likelihood of recovering from alcoholism in a one-year period if you're helping other alcoholics at significant levels. In that sense, it's good to be good, and science says it's so.
1: All right, David. Uh uh, that, I, I don't mean to go to you right after um, Stephen was talking about being an alcoholic. But um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. but you, are, you did tell me on the phone. So you're a screenwriter. You talked about how, how you got started on Big yes. Sunday. And you okay. said that you were so long in what you called development hell that you were either going to become an alcoholic or a humanitarian. So right. tell us, tell <laughs> so, us how, how Big Sunday came okay. about and okay. you didn't have to go the other route.
3: Right. So my name is David, and I am not an alcoholic, (laughs) but but, uh, only by accident, I think. Um, I started Big Sunday. Some of you, any of you familiar with Big Sunday? Oh, good. I was all of a sudden the words are half out of my mouth. I thought, oh, it would be so embarrassing if no one is. Um, But I started it um, totally by mistake, and uh, I, I completely backed into it. As Lisa said, I was a screenwriter stuck in development hell, and. You know, I was writing all these screenplays and actually getting paid for writing these screenplays, and it was nice, but they were never getting made and After a while, that became first of all it was like this weird, cool Hollywood thing to get money for nothing but it started <laughs> but then it became very, very frustrating and very, very depressing and I totally backed into this and I got involved um, helping homeless families that were being moved into permanent housing and they 'd have an, an apartment, but they 'd have no furniture they wouldn 't have a bed they wouldn 't have a sofa. And I was working with this group that we'd provide all that stuff for them, a bed, a sofa, sheets, and towels, and dishes. And it was a great feeling, because you'd set this apartment up, and unlike going to a movie, a meeting's about the same movie for a decade at a stretch. You could go in this apartment and make a bed for somebody who's trying to make a better life for themselves, and say, oh, I know why I'm doing this. I didn't have to ask myself why. And um, I, I always make it a point to say that, that I really fell into the whole world of helping people not because I'm so altruistic, or because I'm such a nice guy. I really did it as a form of self-preservation. And, uh, and I had all this frustrated energy, so years ago when, when my synagogue decided to do a mitzvah day that some of you might be familiar with the concept, Jewish people going out in the neighborhood, they asked me, and the rabbi asked me to do it, and I said yes, and I have forgiven him. But, but so we did in the first year. There were you know 300 good-hearted Jewish people. But I had so much frustrated energy. It's like why have 300 and you can have 800, and why have only Jewish people when you can have Christian people and, and Muslim people and Buddhist people, and so by now you know we just grew and we're now our own independent uh, agency, and and that has evolved in, over time. Uh, what's very important to us and at Big Sunday is that everybody, our target audience, is everybody. We have volunteers who are homeless people, we have volunteers who are world-famous movie stars, and everyone's treated the same and valued the same. Uh, what I always try to say is we do not see people as the haves and the have-nots. We see people as the haves and the have-mores. Everybody has something. It's just a question of figuring out what that is, what speaks to you, what way you have to give to some people. I'll, I'll just say one other thing and then, then I'll turn it over to Jim. But um, you know, some people say we, we purposely do projects for every passion, homelessness, literacy, the environment, aid, seniors, veterans, and every talent, cooking, cleaning, painting, gardening, plumbing, electrical. We've done legal aids, we've <laughs> done dental clinics, we've had hairdressers out there doing makeovers at a women's shelter. And some people say, I don't have any of those talents. I say, no problem, are you friendly? Because we're, we're, we're taking a group of mentally disabled adults bowling. You know? Now, if you have to ask that question, you know the answer. <laughs> they're not. So we say, no problem. You know, the Red Cross is coming. Do you have blood? So the idea is we get them where, wherever they happen to be. Wow. And uh, because I, I think there's great value in it. And most people really are very nice and kind. And they want to help. They just need to know where they're wanted and needed.
4: Did you also ask them if they have a kidney?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, yeah, a good idea. They, they
4: wake, that could be a movie. They wake up and their kidney's gone. Thank you. Uh,
1: so, so Jim Doty, you, um, it's, it's fascinating to me that you're a, a neurosurgeon.
4: I know where this is going.
1: Who, uh, who preaches compassion huh. and, <laughs> and we're already getting, uh, well, I'm sorry, we're, is that? It,
4: it seemed like you were implying that,
1: you know, they wouldn't be. Well, all right, um, please, please tell us how you um, came to, came to found your center um, and what the what the path was for you
4: So uh, I think what we 're getting at here uh, uh, there is a perception oftentimes that neurosurgeons, because of the requirements of the training, the fact that, as an example, there are only three thousand five hundred neurosurgeons in the United States is very highly competitive. Uh, it is a very demanding job. Uh, and the subset of people that frequently are attracted to that are people who are often arrogant, uh, uh, brusque, rude, and uh, feel they're very important. And all those statements are absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> but actually, uh, and I don't want to go too far afield on this, but you know, for me, I actually went in and I never was going to be a neurosurgeon except I was actually going to be a plastic surgeon, and then just said I'd do neurosurgery for fun. And uh, uh, that's actually how I became a neurosurgeon. Uh, uh, But um, in the context of why I founded the center, uh, getting back to alcoholics, uh, but not on so much of a fun sense, I grew up in poverty. Uh, My family was on public assistance my entire life. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, with all the associated negative connotations of that. And my mother was an invalid. And even as a young child, it fascinated me how we would see, or I would see, uh, people of means or in positions of power who somehow people suffering they were completely blind to. And how people who had suffered themselves or were often in those positions actually reached out and embraced you, even though they had nothing and it, 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 when I reflect back on this it, it it interested me you know, geez, how is this even possible and you know for a lot of people in those situations, they get very angry, and I, I just never had anger, but I already experienced the power of caring for others, and it stayed with me and the people who weren 't doing it I actually felt sad for. And fortunately, what happened to me, which is a slightly uh, another story about how I got out of the situation in the context of being able to become a neurosurgeon, since I had no role models. Uh, but I did get out of that situation, and I ended up being actually a very successful entrepreneur who made tens of millions of dollars, who lost it all, and then ended up having a bunch more, and then gave it all away to charity to fund projects to help other people. And one of those projects was actually setting up the center. Because it always continued to fascinate me, what were the mechanisms as to why more people are not altruistic or compassionate? And so uh, from that actually simple inquiry on an informal basis, uh, it actually turned into uh, uh, starting to do some studies And then I had this idea that I wanted to meet the Dalai Lama because I think all of you would acknowledge he is considered a symbol uh, at his absolute core of compassion. Uh, I wanted to hear what he had to say. And so I was going to invite him to Stanford. And to make a long story short, I actually had a meeting with him. And I explained that I'd started these studies and that my interest was to try to understand these, these processes and also how to teach people how to be more compassionate for all the effects that Stephen had alluded to. Uh, and th- this evidence was already becoming readily available. And uh, during this conversation, uh, he was very supportive. And in fact, a, a real quick side note, he said, of course I'll come to Stanford. And, and so he called a monk out. <coughs> and I assumed he would be opening a, a laptop to look at the computer for figure out the dates. He brought out a ledger that was like this big. <laughs> And he opens it up, and he starts going by all of these handwritten pages to pick a date. So this happened, and I was very excited, and in fact, I was overwhelmed. And at the end of this conversation with him, he began this animated dialogue with the person who had been his translator for 25 years or or so. And um, at the end of it, and he speaks perfect English, but at the end of it, his translator says to me, he says, Jim, His Holiness is so moved uh... by this project that you've started and believe so firmly in this he wants to give you a personal donation and it was the largest sum he's ever given to a non-tibetan cause, can you imagine? So I'm taking money from the Dalai Lama (laughs) Uh, but uh... Dad inspired some other people to donate to this and this has actually become quite a prominent center uh, at Stanford, and a, an immense amount of work is being done by us and a number of other people. And, uh, and in the process of all of that, and actually I ended up giving $30 million away to charity, it has actually been the greatest gift to me personally, and also just recognizing and seeing the impact that caring for others has on individuals, and teaching them the value of that. And and all the positive health effects. I mean, one of the greatest causes of sudden cardiac death is what we call lack of heart rate variability. Actually, a compassion training program can have a huge impact on that. Simply, you learning what is innate within yourself and potentiating it can have a profound effect on your cardiovascular function, can have a profound effect on your stress levels and your cortisol levels, which are very deleterious to your health when you have prolonged stress, and also on your immune system. Hmm. And this science is really now developing, so it's, it's actually quite exciting.
1: So it's fascinating that you're, you're looking at this from the scientific level, but David, you're seeing this on uh, you know, at a real personal level, at an individual level. You, you talked about um, people, people coming to you. You talked about, you, you told me about people who were poor, making things that they thought were for themselves. Oh,
3: yeah, we had a thing a a couple years ago we we were doing uh, at a senior center for low-income seniors. And um, we were doing these projects to bring to other seniors. And this one woman, it was this like paper mache arts and crafts thing. And it was really an excuse to bring a lot of people together, people at the center as well as volunteers from other worlds. And this woman, when she was done, took, the project she made, this paper mache flower pot, she was going to take it home. And somebody said, well, you can't take it home um, because we're making this for other people. And and she she said, but I'm poor. It's like, yeah, and she said, I'm I'm old. But it's like, yeah, but we're bringing this to a woman who is poor and old, but is a shut-in and can't even be here today to be with everybody else. And she thought about it for a minute, and she smiled. And she, she said, thank you. you know, she was glad for the opportunity to help somebody else. Uh, our, uh, what, what we like to do, actually, and I think my personal specialty, is the reluctant volunteer. The person who thinks they don't have the time, they don't have the money, they don't have the talent. They might not even have the inclination, but now there's like peer pressure to whatever age you're at to do something. And, and sometimes it takes a while, but, but it's, a, and it's a challenge to find the place where that person fits in. And eventually everybody does.
1: And do you think, uh, S- Stephen Post, do you think this is something then that can be, that you can take these, the reluctant volunteer can still reap these, can, can learn and reap the benefits?
2: Oh, yes. Um, actually, uh, as far as the how-to of volunteerism is concerned, Uh, There's pretty good literature on this, and there are really three key elements, I think. The first is encourage, especially the older adults, but everybody, to be helping in an area where they find meaning and purpose. Sometimes that's the wounded healer idea. You know, you've been through heart surgery and now you're a member of Mended Hearts and you're counseling other people who are nervous preoperatively about what they have to go through or whatever. Or maybe you've had someone in your family with dementia, so now you're working with the Alzheimer's Association. Whatever it might be, do something that rocks your boat, as the saying goes, because that keeps people engaged. The second thing is, volunteer in a way that uses your strengths. Because the attrition rate from volunteering occurs when people feel that they're just spinning their wheels, that they're really not able to do the kinds of things that they're, um, that they're wanting to do that make a difference. Um, and, and then the final thing is, you know, don't overdo it. I mean, all these studies about the benefits of volunteerism are threshold studies. You know, they're typically people who have, you know, everyday work lives, and if they just take an hour to a week and do something uh, oftentimes in, a, in an organizational setting because that does sustain them and allows them to give peer feedback and establish deeper friendships around higher values. But uh, you don't have to overdo it. So do, some, do something in an area that you feel called to, you know, uh, do something that draws on your strengths. And then, uh, you know, you don't have to go overboard. But absolutely, people can be acculturated. And as far as the the older adults go, uh, in assisted living centers now all around the country, they're no longer called nursing homes. Just the idea of you know, being being in bed and getting meals with wheels, you know. Now you go to the assisted living centers, and there are whole wings which are devoted to community activities. And so, if there are walkathons and things going on in the neighborhood, the older adults, you know, they're They're putting the print on the shirts, and they're doing all the weaving of baskets. They're doing all these kinds of things, and they actually go out and involve themselves in these larger community activities. And as Langer has shown, Susan Langer at Harvard and others, uh, the the assisted living centers that have these active volunteer programs actually show significantly lower depression rates in older adults, which is an issue for older adults, and also a significantly reduced mortality rate. So that ain't bad. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, there's, there is still the skeptic in me that, uh, that wonders if people are more engaged, then aren't they out more and about more and more active somehow? Uh, Jim, do you want to uh, <coughs> well, uh, uh, shoot me down on that one? or? <laughs> Is that an exercise issue or is
4: it a? I don't believe it's an exercise issue. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at some of these activities that Stephen was alluding to, you don't have to be physically active at all. The key is to be engaged and to be passionately engaged and to feel that the activity in which you're engaged in is of value. And for most people, they immediately see the value of it. But you know, we, Stephen uses the term mortality. I think it increases your longevity. I mean, when you compare volunteerism as an example and look at some of these studies, it has a significant impact on longevity. And in fact, we can use the term compassion or altruism. There are some subtle differences the way scientists use those terms. But if you look at the benefit of these types of behaviors, and even compare them, what you were alluding to, which is exercise, or even being at your ideal body weight, there are studies that show that these types of behaviors, volunteerism, being compassionate, caring for others, being engaged, actually have as much benefit as exercise or being at your ideal body weight. And, and again, what's extraordinary about all of these is every one of the activities that we're talking about is free. Right. So, we spend billions and billions of dollars, isn't it amazing, on all of these things to quote unquote keep us healthy, but the things that will absolutely make us the most healthy, mentally and physically, are absolutely free and cost absolutely nothing for you to get, engage in. So what is wrong with us? And I still don't know.
3: <laughs> well, one thing that's interesting that, that both Stephen and Jim have alluded to is, is the the idea that volunteering I've seen it evolved in, in my time doing it that it started with the, the old fashioned hands on volunteering serving a meal to a homeless person cleaning a beach, and it's become much more about compassion and about bringing people together. I, I know for us at Pick Sunday actually our mission isn't even community service. It's community service as a means to community building, with the idea that we're all in it together. And you know I think we, we'd all find certainly in an election year that there's so many forces out there working overtime to divide us, telling us how bad the other guy is, whether it's politically or religious extremists. Most people really want to focus on what unites us and what brings us together. And increasingly, whether it's my organization or others, it's very much about bringing people together to realize we're in it together. And if you're cleaning the beach with somebody you know, from a different world, the beach is going to need to be cleaned next week. But if you've been brought together, you realize that, that when we're there with a common mission, it's more, much more likely to happen.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Steve, do you look like you wanna add something? Yes.
2: Well, I, I did wanna add one one thing uh, in, in light of David and Jim's comments. So you know, um, we're talking about the whole lifespan here, folks. I mean, there's studies on toddlers, for example, which you're aware of, you know, showing that they actually have a pretty strong innate compassionate capacity, you know, you know, the wrong buttons may get pushed developmentally, uh, or they may get the wrong role modeling in life, but the innate capacities there are pretty powerful, actually. And um, there's this one really wonderful study that was done in Berkeley, California, in the mid-1920s. It began, it's a prospective longitudinal study, and they took 300 Pre-teens, that means 12-year-olds, okay? And they asked them questions about motivation in life, and about one-third of these kids said, well, I want to use my talents to help others. I want to do something with my gifts to make the world a better place, you know? And then they followed these kids every 10 years. They gave them psychological tests. They gave them uh, um, uh, questionnaires. Uh, They had access to their medical records. it was really quite extensive. They followed them their whole life through. And what they found is that the uh, one-third of the kids who had this kind of helping motivation, uh, they had lower depression rates, lower uh, rates of cardiovascular disease, getting back to something that Jim was saying. And now uh, that these folks are in their like mid and late 90s, okay, so um, two-thirds of the ones who were still alive from the one-third who was 12-year-olds, had that kind of, you know, why that is, maybe it's because, you know, you do get a little reputational gain, you know, maybe you get better job opportunities because people want to hire kind folks and not schmucks or whatever, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> however you want to model it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: no, 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 no not, not at all. On the contrary. <laughs> but my point is that, that if we can acculturate our, our young people into this through various um, uh, communities, uh, and if, if, we can, if we can let them light up and see the joy in all of this through service learning, then it provides a kind of protective halo over their lives that follows them all along. There's exceptions. I mean, obviously, real good young people can you know, get a diagnosis of cancer or be in a car accident after graduation. But if you look at it as a scientific generalization, it's pretty good to be good, and it's not just the old folks, but it's the young folks and the middle-aged folks and everybody.
1: Um, so, Jim Doty, how much is this, uh, This, I mean, this study you just mentioned, Stephen, is started in the 20s, but a lot of this research, it seems like, has really been coming out lately, and how much is that going to inform uh, changes in, potentially, in the practice of medicine?
4: Well, uh, I think, number one, there are a number of studies now uh, that are actually scientifically showing just... The importance of actually being a good doctor. I, I mean, mm-hmm. as an example, there have been some work with some people would call it ha- a lo- having
1: a good bedside manner, exactly, as opposed having, to technically a good but, doctor. But
4: and actually training doctors mm-hmm. for that. In fact, there was a study done and where there were actually actors and there were doctors who were oncologists. Uh, I believe so, uh, they were uh, individuals who were acting as if they had lung cancer, but it showed how many opportunities there were for these to. Pe- Doctors to be empathetic, and how so it didn 't happen, how you know they did not engage, but there are studies that show by simply touching a patient, by being empathetic to them using the right tone of voice, it has a huge impact on actually how they do. I was just having a conversation Stephen alluded to the study by United Healthcare. There are a number of major insurance companies, health insurance companies that are looking at some of these practices. Whether it's a mindfulness type of practice, we have developed a compassion cultivation training program. And there are others who've done similar types of things. These are already having some of the profound effects that I was just alluding to. And if you think about uh, the expenditure for medication and for a variety of disorders that, frankly, are are self-generated, it could have a huge, huge impact. And just to comment on on one of the things that Stephen had said, there are studies that show, if you show a video to children under one year of age where there is an enabler, and it's a little circle with uh, eyes on it that are moving around and it's going up a hill. If it shows somebody coming behind that, another figure pushing it up the hill to help it get to the top of the hill, versus another pushing it down the hill, like 91% of the time, under a year old. These children choose that they want to be the enabler and not mm-hmm. the person who is the the uh, stopper of this good thing from happening, to the perceived good. So, this is an innate characteristic. Mm-hmm. The other comment, which I think I'd just like to say in regard to a statement that David had said, you know, we have this divisiveness. You know, we look at the politics right now and we look at uh, divisiveness among religion. David DeSino at, at, at Northwestern has done some interesting studies because, unfortunately, one of the baggages that we carry with us, if you will, or a piece of baggage from our evolutionary development, is this tendency to have an in-group and an out-group. And it's this tribal instinct. And it's based on this, in, in fact, how we developed as a species to you know, protect this small group of people. And so this natural tendency occurs. But what David Destino has shown is that if you can look at what you perceive as the other or not like you and pick out initially even one characteristic which you can think of that you have in common, immediately barriers start coming down. And in fact, in this compassion cultivation training, that's what we do. We, th- we start out by saying... Who is it that you love the most, or have the greatest compassion for? And it's usually your children, or it could be, uh, you know, uh, especially for a mother. But and then take that and extend that circle to start then getting uh, uh, saying I feel care and love for this person who I don't necessarily know, and then taking it back to to the person I really don't like, <laughs> and then or this person who's very difficult, and then saying. What is it about this person? Do they have children? I have children. Certainly they want for their child. right? And when you start looking at act, that the behaviors that are in common, all the barriers of separation start melting and allows you to be engaged. And uh, you know, there's this idea that we're working with the creation of a compassion gymnasium. Because again, as Lisa said, we're talking about exercise. Well, how do you get stronger? It's by rep- repetition. And by giving people tools that allow them to maximize their compassion and then reap all the health benefits as well as benefit others, that's really, uh, truly exciting, I believe.
1: So, so David, yeah, I was going to ask you about, because you said you like to bring diverse populations together. But go, go ahead. Well,
3: We found in Los Angeles, for example, there's a lot of people in Beverly Hills, say, we're near, right near Beverly Hills, who have never been to South Central LA and they're very nervous to go. They've heard about South Central LA, they've seen it on the news, they might have remembered the riots, whatever, they don't want to go, so they're very nervous. But I've learned that there's just as many people in South Central LA who've never been to Beverly Hills, and they're just as nervous to go. And the difference between never going and going once is enormous. But the difference between going once and going twice Especially if, while you've been there, you've been cleaning out a cafeteria, or planting a garden, or painting a fence, and working side by side with somebody, and, and relating to them as a mom or a dad, or as somebody who's living in Los Angeles, or somebody who's living in America, trying to make the world a better place. You don't have to be discussing the fact that you're coming from different worlds. You're just there together with a, with a commonality of purpose. And once you've done that once, between never going and going once is huge. Between going once and going twice isn't so big. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very much what we're about. It's the same as going into a house of, house of worship, not your own. I okay? know for, for myself, before doing this, I had never been in, in a gospel church. I had never been in an orthodox synagogue. I had never been in a mosque, certainly. And we're richer for those experiences. I know with my kids, in in the early days of Big Sunday, I'd go around to these places and talk it up as it was coming. And some of the the clergymen would would give me their pulpit for a few minutes. And uh, at, at my synagogue at the time, our religious school was on Sundays. I remember waking my kids up one morning and saying, I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is you don't have to go to temple today. The bad news is you're going to church twice. (laughs) But but it was great. We went to an Episcopal temple that looked like a church. I mean, that that looked like it was uh, something out of the Cotswolds, actually up in Hollywood, a largely gay and lesbian church. And then we went down to a gospel church in West Adams. And it was fantastic. I will say of the gospel church, like, I like being Jewish, but they have it all over us in the music. Uh, but but it's it's really great. We're all just people. We're all that's really and and whether it's with kids or with older people, you're never too old to learn compassion and and to be sympathetic. And most of us have that. We just want to find a place to express it.
1: Stephen, your institute is also sponsoring studies uh, around the world. Is that right? Yeah. We,
3: well,
2: the institute. Uh, yeah. So I was sitting in my office at Case Western at the time in the summer of 2001 and I received a fax from uh, Sir John Templeton, the investor, and it said, Stephen, we need to start an institute that doesn't study human deficit and disease, but the greatest asset, which is giving and generosity and love. I faxed back Sir John, what should we call it? It's a great idea. His response was, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love and I had a moment of white male trepidation. I thought, my, my research buddies around here are going to start asking me now, what kind of love are we talking about? But uh, So I faxed back, well, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism, taking a note from Sorokin, which is kind of a science term that's a little dry and arid and kind of, you know, a little more acceptable, right? doesn't have that dynamic of, you know, love for humanity, right? Although my, my African-American pastor friend, Otis Moss, up in, in, near the clinic in, the, in his, uh, in his uh, institutional Baptist church would say, of course, love, let love roll down from the mountains like a river. Um, but anyway, I faxed back that suggestion to Sir John, and then he faxed back to me, no, I think unlimited love, 8.9 million dollars. And, and, and then I, 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 I did the only thing that David would have done, or Jim, or Lisa. I fax back Sir John. I love that language. It jumps right off the page. And he was right. And we were able to fund a lot of things. Uh, and and it's still active. And and, uh, and it's the love of my life. I mean, to be able to discover more things that... that the science is really cool, but ultimately it's the role modeling, you know, and the practice and the gymnasium and the people you can think of in your life who just in their like the tone of voice and the little details of how they interact, you know, they, you never forget those things. So it's passing the torch, but the science doesn't hurt. It helps to have it there because otherwise sometimes people just think, well, it's okay to be a total cynic. I mean, this, this doesn't exist at all in human nature. And and that's what a lot of people, I mean Freud and Sartre and others thought that way, but now we know that that at least we have a baseline for it, and that's a good thing.
4: You know, one of the things I say is, you know, and I think this uh, uh, keynotes uh, what uh, Stephen was saying is that, you know, it's great to do the scientific research, and it does have to be done, especially in secular organizations. If we cannot show metrics or results. It's hard for them to buy into it, especially healthcare organizations and things like this. <clears throat> but uh, at the end of the day, though, the only thing that really matters is while the, on an intellectual level this research is interesting, it only matters that it turns into action. Fundamentally, unless we can do what David does and instill in people the value proposition to themselves and to others. Of engaging, creating community, understanding, if you will, your purpose on this earth. We were talking earlier about, you know, uh, there's egoism and there's selflessness. You know, egoism is easy, and a lot of us have these issues, especially neurosurgeons, as I'll acknowledge. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's here, it's I. When you, and, and while that can certainly cause a transformation in your life, What is fundamentally going to cause transcendence in your life is selflessness. Because what that does is that takes you outside of yourself. It puts you in a place where you feel you have a purpose in this world, where you feel you can contribute and it can be on what you could do by yourself, and it embraces everyone. And that's transcendence. And that is really at a fundamental core of what we all wish for, I think. Can I make one really hilarious comment because
2: that's such a deep thought. <laughs> uh, but I got to tell you. So, 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 you know, this to be so deep. You are
4: deep. <laughs> I'm
2: kidding you. But listen, so, so, uh, you know, one of, one of our colleagues, uh, Stephanie Brown, did a study and they found out that uh, people who lose a spouse, widows and widowers, um, they get through grief and bereavement better and. And quicker and in a more lasting way, if they can report informal helping activities in their lives. You know, just helping others in these little ways, like volunteering, mm-hmm. as in David's group or whatever. And so I had to do this talk uh, at a town in the middle of Long Island called Islandia to a group of widows and widowers. And I sort of laid out this little study. And there was a guy in the back of the room, and he yelled out, I don't care what you say, I don't do nothing for nothing. <laughs> And, and and wouldn't you say? I mean, I'm you know, so it's like it's like I think one of the things that holds people back is that they 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 think you you know you, you, if there's no payback you know you you shouldn't do it you know and 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 like that's what the pay pay it forward thing is but just live I love this way like that. that's yeah, like yeah, so looks, yeah. I want
1: to hear about how yeah, you deal yeah. with people yeah. like
3: that. Well, no, I, that's like a real challenge. And <laughs> yeah. and, and every so often, like, like what you were saying, Jim, before every so often there's something like. Um, that that somebody after one election not long well a while ago I was very upset with the res, re, the results of the election so i thought i'm going to channel all that energy by reaching out to the other side that i was on and it was interesting it, but um one thing we my favorite event we've done all year and we've done big like rehabs of places involving tens of thousands of dollars and tons of people. My favorite event we did this year was for for your guy. Uh, You can ship him out here from Islandia. I got a call from a woman in in Boyle Heights who runs a place helping mentally disabled adults. And some of them were incontinent, and they were going through underwear left and right. And she needed new underwear for these people. She wasn't complaining that that was her job, was to clean up this stuff. It was that she needed more underwear. So what we did is we hired a party bus, and it was just going to drive around town. It was called the Big Sunday Chill Out Express for really for the laziest volunteer. And all you had to do, yeah, you know, no like power tools, no you know sweating. All you had to do to go on this bus was to bring some new underwear for this place. And he said, because she when she comes like, how am I going to get all this underwear? So people come, and like this friend of mine called, and he's like, dude, really, what do I have to do? I said, bring some underwear. So we had three runs of it, one at 9, one at 10, and one at 11, people would show up, and they'd get on this bus, and it was this tricked out bus, there was room for like 45 people, and they would, but they came with mountains of underwear. And we they got on the bus and we had coffee and donuts on the bus, because it was in the morning, and you're forced, it was like, because it was a party bus, you were forced to look at people and, and talk to people. And, and people say, where are we going? It's like, oh, nowhere. <laughs> and, and it's like, what are we doing? And like, nothing. And we just drove around the city. But, but there was, there was a, a group of people in recovery, and there was a group of women from a battered women's shelter, and there was a school group, and there was a church group, and there were families. And, you know, you're this far apart from them, so you have to have a conversation, because you're just looking at them for an hour. It was fantastic. I mean, it was my favorite thing to do, because it was really what... like. It was really what it was about. It was bringing people together. And even your guy from Islandia could have been there and thought, you know, he's done something and he's had a conversation with somebody. And it was a, it was a, it was a gateway experience. You know,
4: just to comment on our friend from Islandia. Uh,
3: <laughs> I, knew I, was, I
1: knew I was poor on guy. Long Island. I'm yeah. telling you.
4: <laughs> but, but you know what's interesting, though, when you encounter people like this, and, and I encounter them as uh, physicians sometimes, and they're like, so these chronically negative people, and, and you're just sitting there feeling yourself beginning to see because you're just going, what? Uh, but, I, but you know, unfortunately, people start calling me Mr. Compassion, so I have to moderate that a little bit. But, uh, but when you think about the why would it be that somebody would make a comment like that? How, what got them there? And really, if you take the time to chat with them, or actually spend some time, or reach out to them, it's from a place of really deep pain. And they've had events that have happened to them where either they haven't been loved, they haven't been nurtured. And that is what is the driver here. Because if, if you, this is invariably what is the problem. And if you actually reach out and make the effort, oftentimes these people, in my experience has been they'll break down or they'll tell you a story. And then once they tell you the story, they're engaged with you. right. Uh, and, and it's like I have these conversations about, you know, people say, we need more prisons, which is a very interesting idea. Uh, <laughs> w- what we need is not more prisons. What we need is more love and nurturing and kindness. Because the people who are in prisons, the vast majority of people who are in prisons, are there because they did not have that. It's not because they're, they're bad people. And, we were commenting on this earlier. Every one of us has the capacity every day, no matter our station, our position, to help another person. Every one of us. And, and the more you do it, the better it feels. And, and it's really that simple. It Fundamentally, he's brought it down to its lowest level. But that is it. It's so My simple. God, and it's right it's there. The well, I, I, no, I, 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 we all have to I'll recognize... i take it as a
3: compliment. I, I got where it was coming
4: from. But, but no, uh, seriously, I mean, uh, that is at the core of us. That's what we're here for. And that's what brings values to our lives, and that's what has the potential to bring us great health. I w- was intrigued by the, the point that the gentleman from a Big Sunday mentioned, that he no longer thinks of the, their function as doing service, but building
0: community. And, and when I think of, of your discussion, I think of the juxtaposition between team, people doing it from inside versus, oh, well, I want to get healthy, so I should go and volunteer. Or, you know, that guy talked me into it, but, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Um, so I, I was I- interested in, in your guys speaking to that. In other words, so I go and volunteer, is it about what I want to volunteer about, or is it about
3: my looking good? As far as I'm concerned, it's perfectly wonderful to want to look good and to want to feel good. And, and we have volunteers who do it who are, who are you know holy people, nuns and, and people who are, have committed their life to it. We have people who do it because their probation officer told them they had to do it. <laughs> and everyone in between. And, and I think what you have to do is be honest with yourself while you're doing it. And if you're saying, you know, I'm really bummed out, and I want to do this, I want to help somebody, but I want to feel good about it and give my life some meaning, too. I think that's perfectly respectable, and you're much more likely to help both of yourselves that way. That, that's my feeling about it. you just, just got to be keep it real with yourself. You don't have to tell anybody else. But, and we work with people all the time with um, uh, companies that want to do it for good publicity. Some people really walk the walk and they, they really believe in it. Some want to do it for their publicity. At the end of the day, you're helping somebody. And, and sometimes what you find... I found this with myself. I always say, if I can do this, anybody can do this. And, and you find you go into it for one reason, and different reasons appear to you as, as you continue on. Just
4: to make a comment, I actually was with the Dalai Lama, and I, I said to him, I said, you know, uh, does it really matter about being altruistic what your intent is, if the end point is good? And he looked at me, and he laughed, and he said, no. Uh, if you're doing something for others, whatever the reason you're doing it, it's irrelevant. And then he looks at me and says, unless you're a Buddhist. Uh,
2: (laughs) I do worry a little bit sometimes that, you know, um, I think anecdotally people realize that there's a lot of gratification and meaning and creativity that you find when you get away from the self and the problems of the self and just focus on helping others. I mean that's just like kitchen table wisdom I would I would say, um, but um, you know I also think it's it's important to sort of keep that in the forefront just the value of helping others and and I like to think of the benefits which aren't guaranteed they're generalizations um, um, they're 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 more side effects or byproducts and so it's like paradoxical to me so. You know, uh, the motto for my institute is In the giving of self lies the unsought discovery of a deeper self. Um, I'd just like to
4: keep that mm-hmm. In, in, mm-hmm. in view. See, you said a steep comment, and I don't have an Islandia person. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you think it would be a great thing for elementary kids or a little bit on the middle school kids to learn about that?
4: Well, I think we're already seeing it. In fact, uh, there are programs on (laughs) social-emotional learning, uh, as well as mindfulness. Now, young children are not quite prepared for mindfulness or meditation practice. But there is huge, huge benefit demonstrated from these types of interactions. There are a number of studies that have been done in schools where uh, there has been significant violence or dropout rates or things like this. Obviously, frequently these are in areas uh, of uh, lower socioeconomic uh, 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 levels, uh, and th- there's a huge amount of evidence that this has a profound, profound impact. Because you know, the reality is, you know, part of it's quieting the mind, part of it's uh, uh, giving, being given techniques uh, to uh, self-regulate your emotions. Because you know, what happens for many of us is that if you haven't been trained or haven't had life experience, uh, is that something Event happens to you, you immediately react to it. But if you can sort of take a little bit of time to pause, those emotions come down. But if you've never been taught that, and everything is an emotional response, the wonderful thing about these programs, though, is many of these children who are taught this actually take these techniques home. And they become teachers actually to their parents, or their parents are so astounded by these behavioral changes that then they seek out this type of thing for themselves.
2: And and just to add one thing to that, I
4: totally agree with with what Jim's saying.
2: Um, There is a fellow named James Eunice, a psychologist, Y-O-U-N-I-S-S, and he's been studying service-based learning in the high schools that begins at about age 12 or 13, typically. Been studying it since it got started officially <coughs> in the U.S. in 1992, so now this is a prospective study that's been going on for 20 years, and those kids are in their mid-30s. Okay, so the 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 the, the kids who get into this because they're really excited, uh, you know, something really rocks their boat. I mean, they just they have the right role model. They they just really get into this. They actually do have benefits. They have lower depression rates. They tend to be. More civically engaged, uh, more pro social. Um, uh, it's really quite interesting. Uh, but what about the kids who are doing it, not because they're just kind of intrinsically motivated, but because it's an expectation? It's part of your requirement, you know? Uh, well, they actually also, on the whole, have significant benefits. They're not maybe quite as pronounced, but they're significant. And that goes to tell you that, you know, sometimes. Um, it's like you're volunteering. Sometimes, you know, you get involved in helping others and you're not, made, you're not there emotionally yet. You know, it's a little bit external. But uh, at a certain point for a lot of these kids, a light goes on and they realize, you know what? This actually is pretty good, you know? And, that, and then they get captured. And so, so you know, no one shoe fits all. And there's benefits for both groups.
3: And this generation is, it's part of their DNA. Helping much more than like my age, the kids, and it's not just that the schools have requirements. You'll just notice that so many, whether it's people wanting to start nonprofits, people starting for profits with a with a side to it that is is a social, socially conscious side to it. It's very much a part of the generation coming up. We get calls all the time. We always get calls people wanting to get their kids involved. It's like. Boy, my son is bouncing off the walls. He was so obnoxious today. I want to show him how poor people live. I get those all the time. And I was like, all right, you know, you I want to, they always want homeless people. So I was like, okay, I can tell you what homeless people are, but just remember that those homeless people are not there for your child's, like, enrichment. They are there because they're in a shelter. Nice. And, and also you got to understand, like, when you go to a shelter, just because they're homeless, some homeless people are jerks. Like they're people, and, and there are some rich people who are really nice, and <laughs> vice versa, and, and well, we, But I think it's really this it really? part speaks to your compassion. But I think it speaks to your compassion know. that you have to you go when when dealing with people from a different world or disadvantaged people or, or whatever it is. The most important thing, and I feel the most compassionate thing, is not to have a double standard and to view people as people and to interact with them as as other human beings.
4: You know, I think this is one of the challenges. You know. We talk about the term pity and we talk about compassion. You know, pity is when you put yourself up here and you're looking down. You know, compassion is when you're looking eye to eye and you're equal and you're just sharing your humanity. And I think that's really a key when you have these types of interactions. It's not because you're particularly special, it's because it's another person like you. Hi, my name is Paul Clark. So uh, it's a political year,
0: and uh, I don't hear anybody talking about the uh, compassion index or or the altruism uh, index. It's all GDP and, and those sorts of things. And, and there's a lot of discussion about how much government can and should do, but you know, however much government ever does, there's always going to be a lot of unmet ne- uh, need, uh, things that aren't addressed. And I guess what I see as a great tragedy is that there you know, there's a huge reserve of potential altruism that is not being organized or not being really directed at, at these needs and, you know, t- to the detriment of, you know, the the lack of uh, happiness of a lot of people. So my question is, uh, are is anyone talking about models for, you know, better ways to to, to engage people in, in the needs that there are? Or is that where the, the Dalai Lama comes in?
4: And- See, DAVID Sloan DAVID wilson who's an evolutionary biologist, is actually uh, has a recent book. I know maybe you can recall it, one of you. But it's, it's uh, I think, improving uh, society neighborhood by neighborhood. But it actually talks about community engagement and certain steps that you go through that can have a profound effect on developing community and uh, uh, engaging people. And that's really what it's all about. It, it, it's creating community, uh, having a place to go where you feel comfort. The other uh, person who's doing something like this is, uh, I don't know if you know Karen Armstrong, or we sp- it's spelled Karen, which I was saying, she looks at me like Why'd you call me, Karen? My name is Karen, uh, but uh, she actually doesn't do this. She's very sweet. But uh, anyway, uh, she's uh, one of the major religious writers. But she's created uh, a Compassionate Action Network. She's also created the uh, Charter of Compassion and won the TED Prize, for which she used those funds to do the Charter of Compassion. But she's created a Compassionate Cities program, which is engagement, civic engagement, engagement by the business community, to create a framework which values its citizens, whatever level they are, and creates a, a, a um, if you will, a um, net so people don't fall through, and that they're resources for everybody. And it's those types of things that uh, I, I think allow people of whatever talent to engage. And it also creates something that brings people together.
3: Well, and it's necessary. Things like schools that I know in my experience doing this over. 12, 13 years. Schools that used to ask us thing, for things like books and crayons and paper—they're asking us for food. They're, they're asking us for shoes for the kids. I mean, they've become—and this is this is like places ten minutes from here. Th- These—they've become like de facto social service agencies. And increasingly, what Big Sunday has actually evolved to, though we didn't expect to, was to meet that shortfall of a lot of places. And and what we've really tried to do with Big Sunday is to create a big Sunday compassionate community of people we know we can count on to when we have emergency needs like that. And, and we know because certain people have been involved long enough what their passion is and what their interest is. That's, that's the way it has to be now.
4: You were talking about compassion training, and I was thinking how would you train an adult in compassion? Do you go back to those fundamental skills that we see in young children, or do you approach it from a... A different perspective for adults. No, I, I well, I think there are two issues. One of which is, I think, unique to the West, uh, which is this concept of self-compassion—a recognition of your own suffering and understanding that. Because you know, when when you yourself are suffering and, and you don't recognize that, it's hard to reach out to other people. And the other is, <clears throat> generally speaking, uh, there is something that you love and it 's the identification of that thing that you love so deeply and that you 're willing to sacrifice for, and taking that feeling and then extending it continually outward, of course you know i 'm not a Buddhist, but uh, you know the Buddhists have this term Bodhisattva, and uh, you know this is the an enlightened one, uh, and so the goal is to you know, extend it to all sentient beings is what the Dalai Lama talks about. That might be a stretch for uh, certainly for a neurosurgeon, but uh, 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 but uh, you know that's what our task is, and if we can try to do that, for you know it's not always possible. You know we are human beings. The other thing I think for each of us to recognize is that we are frail human beings. We don't make always the right decisions. We make wrong decisions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have the capacity to go beyond that. And, and instead of spending so much time beating each other, ourselves up, reaching out and caring for another and recognizing that they're suffering in the same way. I mean, can you imagine in our society, Western society, one, a study was done that showed one quarter of people said that they had no one they felt comfortable telling uh, them that they were in pain or suffering. A quarter of people said they had no one they felt comfortable talking to can you imagine and, and can you imagine in our society what what I find fascinating is we have all of these people from the third world who wish to come to america right because we have every advantage supposedly right a large percentage of these people are from countries that have some of the deepest wisdom traditions and insights and they want to come to a place where we have the highest levels uh, an epidemic levels of isolation loneliness and depression i mean well, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. But what is it that, though, if you go backtrack and look at those communities, what is it that they have? You know, these third world countries. You know, once somebody has shelter, once they have food uh, and security, they hardly need anything. They're happy. It's not coming here and uh, uh, having you know, conspicuous consumption. And that's the thing that, that, that people forget. So, you know, if you can get core down to that level and recognize that those are the things that make you happy.
1: I very
3: recently quit my job, very well-paid job, um, right. with the support of my family and friends um, to follow my passion, which is helping animals. Oh. And uh, do you guys have any suggestions of how I can go about making a living while doing that?
4: Can I... I, I had that I, same discussion with my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> can I make a comment on that? Well,
2: you, you know, you can start a nonprofit, right? Uh, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I, I was just writing a little story about this, but about two years ago, I, I got a phone call from a gal in uh, Secaucus, New Jersey, very heavy New Jersey accent. And she said that she'd lost her grandmother. They were very close. And uh, she was finding meaning in life now by uh, organizing uh, people in the community to look after these very imperiled uh, and abandoned dogs and cats. And would I please come and give a talk at this restaurant? It was the Bonefish Grill. <laughs> and and, and I, I didn't know if I should take this seriously, but she kept calling me back and I thought, oh, okay, I'll have to go. So I actually made the trip one Saturday morning and I got to the Bonefish Grill about 12 o'clock and they had the, you know, Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background and, and all these videos of these, of these cats and dogs and taking insulin and such things. And she made a, a pretty successful nonprofit out of it and she found some philanthropists up along the, uh, the Jersey shore who were really quite supportive. So I think to do something like this, you have to really have a, a philanthropic vision and then uh, you know, create a little uh,
4: nonprofit plan, and go for it. I think it could work pretty in a pretty interesting and, way. And, you know, the thing is, uh, when you say make a living, I mean uh, that has many meanings. What is the living you want to make? Well, and and, and you know, I think it's absolutely right. You know, when you, when you follow your passion, oftentimes doors open very unexpectedly. And, and there are people who have the same passion you have and desire, and who are there. It's you know, and I, I don't mean to sort of get gushy and mushy with you, but sometimes I do that even as a neurosurgeon. Uh, uh, but but you know, when you open your heart, and you're you're authentic about your desire, often things times amazing things happen.
3: Have you spoken to anyone that runs nonprofits for animals? I mean, here and there, I've worked for. I was interning and volunteering at a lot of places. I am volunteering right now. Um, my family fosters dogs as it is, but we haven't done anything bigger with that.
2: You know, by the way, C.S. Lewis, the theologian, said that there, there are dogs in heaven because they are the perfect symbols of unconditional love. You know how mu- no, no matter how bad a day you've had, how, how nasty you might have been, you come home and there's that dog wagging its tail, which is pretty phenomenal.
3: With that, thank you so much.